Our conversation about anxiety has taken us beyond just a baseline discussion of stress in our students. We've discussed psychology, trauma, specialized learning plans, modern teaching tactics like VR, traditional mindfulness practices like meditation, and like everyone else, we're trying to wrap our heads around how COVID has disrupted most of the defined structures in our lives. So we've been discussing this at length too, all with the intention of developing a more well-rounded understanding of why students and parents suffer from anxiety and what we can do to help. To further this discussion, I'm joined by Becky Rabasa. Becky is the executive director of Lynx Academy, an adaptable, interactive, and supportive school for students grades six through 12. Welcome to Graduating Anxiety, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the academic challenges that students struggling with anxiety face. I'm your host, Alex Merrill. To further this discussion, I'm joined by Becky Rabasa. Becky is the executive director of Lynx Academy, an adaptable, interactive, and supportive school for students grades six through 12. On today's episode, we're gonna discuss tactical learning solutions, dive into why there is often overlap between anxious learning and other learning disorders, and what this means in terms of treating them. Tell me about your career history and uh, how you came to be uh, executive director of Lynx. Right, so I had, um, my undergrad was in psych and social and a concentration in social work. And when I graduated, I got a job in Greenwich at Community Centers Incorporated, which um, works with the residents of public housing, providing educational support and advocacy and clinical services and social groups and almost like a settlement house model where, you know, you're part of these families' lives and, you know, support any way you can. Columbine happened, which made many schools in the area, especially independent schools, realize that they did not have enough mental health services. Um, they were depending on teachers and college counselors to do mental health. And so King uh, posted for a full-time social worker or school counselor, and I took it. And I was the first full-time mental health professional at King. King, the private school in Stanford. King, yes, right King, there. the yeah. private we both, school. We both got yep. there. Yeah. Yes, and that's how we, yeah. that's right. right. So I started there in uh, 1999 and stayed there until this August. And, you know, now oh, there's wow. four counselors there, and we built a really strong program. And uh, same thing, I decided that it was, you know, my kids had graduated and from King and are in college, and it was just time to yeah. move on. And I got this opportunity. Yeah. And as a school counselor, I had been referring to Lynx Academy for many, many years. So that's how I ended up right. here. All right. Uh, tell me about Lynx, though. Um, you know, what does Lynx do differently than other schools? Right. So Lynx Academy offers a one-on-one -on -one educational model where we deliver a college preparatory curriculum, but at the student's individualized pace. I kind of describe it as two programs, but many students end up utilizing both. So let's imagine a student has to miss four weeks of King School, since we both um, worked there, uh, right. because they had knee surgery. The work, you know, goes at a very quick pace and they can't go back into the classroom with four weeks of makeup work and try to stay current. 
So if they come to links, I contact the school, we partner with the school, we try to get rid of any real busy work because the beauty of links, which I really love because we've talked about it for so many years in education, but now I can see it really happening is that we get to teach for understanding because teaching one-on-one, -on -one, you're not worried about the other 14 kids. You don't need to move just because the other kids get it and you don't need to stay hmm. um, if yeah. you get it. Yeah. And so we'll partner with the referring school and get the makeup work and uh, the students will work with our teachers to get caught up as quickly as possible and we get the pacing so that they're ready to enter the class and be current. You must see a lot of concussion uh, cases these days. Yes. So that's what I was thinking of when I heard yeah. you talking about it. Yeah. Right. This year, not as much, right? Because there's not as many sports yeah, and there's yeah. not as many kids picking each other up and throwing each other, right? I mean, there's just no, they're not talking, they're not Into getting near each yeah. other, right? <laughs> that's true. So. I one saving grace here, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then the other piece that we can do, because we're NEASC accredited, is that we can give credit. So if a student maybe can't make up work fast enough, or we actually have students that move into the area that are from other independent schools and they you know, miss the admission cycle, so they'll come to links and finish the year, or sometimes kids find themselves for disciplinary reasons or for you know a variety of health reasons not being able to finish the year. And so we're able to provide courses for credit and provide a transcript. That's good, that's, that's important. Have you noticed there's overlapping factors or traits between you know, anxiety and you know, learning dif differences or ADHD or what, have you noticed any patterns? Well, I think something that we struggle with is when we first it's first presenting itself, I think trying to diagnose uh, or decide what is the real issue between anxiety and ADHD is, is are you not paying attention because you're so anxious about, you know, if everybody's looking at you or not, or being able to keep up and not being able to pay attention make you anxious, you know? And so I think weeding that out and deciding what to focus on, not that you really, you really probably need to spend time on both, but, you know, to actually decide, is it that they actually are dealing with executive function issue, issues and they really can't pay attention or processing speed? Or is it all just, you know, noise because they're so worried about where they're going to sit at lunch, you know, and that they <laughs> right, can't, they're right. not listening totally. to you in the classroom? <laughs> totally, totally, yeah. Um, and, and I think that's why sort of diagnosis is like a huge part of the puzzle mm -hmm. and, and developing rapport with the student, which I think is you're in a unique position to do that in a one-on-one -on -one setting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that the connection between the teachers and, and the students is amazing. And, and people ask me a lot during intake, well, you know, our, we do have teachers um, who have special ed backgrounds and many of our teachers have been trained as EF uh, coaches, but one-on-one, -on -one, working you have to do ef coaching right because you can't hide in the back right like you know right. the kids know the tricks i knew the tricks you know oh get your homework out okay oh i'm still looking for it i'm still yeah, looking for it and then the, okay i'm sure you have it it's yeah. a fine and then you move on and nobody really held you know holds you accountable and you can get away with that for a while but one-on-one -on -one, um just the natural accountability of well, how long do you think it was is going to take you? How long did it actually take 
you. Where is it? How come it didn't upload? Okay, let's do it now. Let's and they get to work and see some of our teachers are very good at starting homework at the end of because we have hour long sessions. So some teachers, you know, especially working with students that have EF issues, will start the homework at the very last 10, 15 minutes so they can see the process. Like, where is the homework? And yeah. And in the first 10, 15 minutes or whatever is usually the hardest, right? Just kind of getting right. the ball rolling yeah. too, particularly if it's a bigger project. Yeah. Well, and if you have trouble with initiation, then it's definitely nice to have a directive. Do right. it now. <laughs> exactly. Or perfectionism, right? Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes getting yeah. started is the hardest part. Yeah. Right. You know, what are some of the tactics that you've found effective, you know, that parents or other educators could apply for kids specifically with anxiety? Mm -hmm. Well, again, there's so many different, it's hard to say one thing, but I think giving kids tools, you know, anxiety, as we know, is just a series of irrational belief systems. So I think what happens with parents, I mean, you're trying to give a rational response to an irrational belief, like, well, that will never happen. What's the worst that can happen? You know, like saying these things are things that are natural to do, but are not necessarily helpful. And so really the only thing that I have said over and over is that the only way to get comfortable is to practice being uncomfortable. And for some kids, they need a lot more support with that, where you might actually have to walk them to the door of the teacher and stand outside and say, okay, go, and I'm here if you know need me. Or if they're very anxious, you might go with them, right, the, for the first meeting. But you have to have them do it. You know, it's just like get over the threshold. I think that's a tactic and, and teachers can be very good at that if they can understand that breaking it into small pieces is sometimes all the student needs. And giving kids tools, you know, like very simple things like breathing and acupressure points and, you know, so that they can feel in control and recognize when it's coming and what tools will be helpful. Have you, um, uh, what do you do with mindfulness exactly? Yeah, well, I, I think I had more of an opportunity now, of course, since I'm, um, the executive director, I do not have as much um, contact day to day with the students, mm, but yeah, yeah. some of the ways I used to sell kids, it's just like, let's just sit here for a minute and do, you know, four deep breaths or, or do some box breathing. And just when they notice how quickly they feel better just by right. doing something that they're supposed to do all the time, <laughs> you know, you have to right. breathe to live. Um, it's, right. it's pretty cool to see. And even just having kids like, understand the physiology like if you're having a panic attack yes you should be supported but if you sit down you're not getting as much oxygen right so right, kids would right. come in and they'd slump into the couch you should have somebody supported when they're having a panic attack but i'd have right. them stand up and hold their elbow and they'd get you know deeper breaths and they could feel more in control more quickly I think it's probably the exception. I'm not even sure I can think of any situations where a kid had either ADHD, LD, or anxiety and didn't have some sort of other facet of um, one of those other conditions. And it's just difficult. I mean, if you, if you have ADHD, to not be anxious about that, to not worry that my teacher's gonna be upset with me if I can't sit still. The key to sort of treating that is understanding it. I'd say diagnosis is probably half the battle. The first 
you know, session or two or even three sometimes are primarily uh, diagnosis, figuring out uh, what is troubling the kid. But these, these issues, it's, it's amazing. They go ignored. Typically, there's just nobody assigned to, to those learning profiles unless, you know, the parent or a very concerned teacher or administrator, that's very, very unlikely though, uh, steps in and says, we need to do something about this. They won't. And then the kid will continue to just sort of struggle on and on futilely um, with those same issues that are, that are plaguing them. What are some tactics that you have taken to combat you know, anxiety uh, during the pandemic. Uh, what is what has been successful for you? For me personally, or helping the students? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, well, both. Well, both. Um, let me let me hear about what you, what what you've done personally, and and I think that's I mean I think that's an underrated thing too. If we're talking to about parents of kids, yeah, self care. Right. Yeah, you got to put your own oxygen mask on first. So that's right. Yeah, I'd love to hear about that, and then and then yes, for students too. I do try to do the the clinical model of you know you have a fifty minute meeting and then you take ten minutes and you shut your screen and whatever you like to do, you walk outside or you do whatever is your thing, right? So you you have some breaks and also to be done with one thing and move on. I think that's what's happened with the screens. Like you don't have passing time. You don't oh. have like. Like if you know, yeah. like if you're in a school, you get the ten minutes to walk in between, you know, your class or you you where you're focusing. And here it's like, you know, you hang up and then you click back on. What I'm hoping comes out of this is that the adults in the world understand work balance a little bit better. You know that there you can do your job and be home and uh, find time for exercise. And, you know, hopefully as we have a full return to school, everybody will take a breath and realize that although important, I surely would not say that, you know, liberal arts education is not important. I think there's excellent pieces about it, but content and getting through things are not as important as really you know, enjoying life because we don't know when it will change. <laughs> and that surely can make people mm. anxious. But I think finding the joy in the day is, is something that people have gotten better at because we realize that we're doing so many multitasking things. At the end of a day of Zoom, you feel like you ran a marathon. Right. At least I do. I'm like totally. exhausted. Totally. Yeah. What are some key things that parents and educators need to recognize about children with mental illness? I think it depends on the situation, obviously. So it, it's hard to speak in too much detail, but I think also self-care for parents. I think a lot of times when our kids struggle with whatever it is happening, uh, you know, we try to fix it. Um, or that we felt guilty that somehow we did something wrong. Absolutely. And that caused it. And, totally. you know, yeah. life happens and you just have to you know, remain as solution focused as you can. I think the parent advice that I've given for years and years, again, not so sure I take it myself, is, you know, we have two ears and one mouth. And a lot of times the child hasn't even 
finish telling you what the problem is and we jump right. in with like well why don't you do this and have you done this and did you do this and did you do that you would never do that to your friends or you would have no friends right if they're <sighs> like well my boss is an idiot you know well did you do this did you do this did you do this you know <laughs> so you not ask the follow-up right. question like well what happened and how why do you think that happened <laughs> you yeah. know with kids we go right into like let's fix it why, why do you think that is it's, is that I because think of feelings well, parents, of guilt? Or? Yeah, of course. I, well, it's so hard, right? Talking about, you know, practice um, getting comfortable. It's very hard to feel uncomfortable. And when your kids are uncomfortable, right, it feels awful. But then again, we look backwards and we're like, what lessons did we learn? You know, the lessons that are our true life lessons, we usually learned because we screwed it up a little bit. Parents, just in general, myself included, you jump in and you want to, you know, be the prefrontal cortex that you know that they don't have and start thinking like, well, what can we do? What should you do? What, you know, and not really let them mess up a little bit. And I think we're scared that if they fail too much, that it will be a reflection upon us. That's my generation, um, you know. Oh, definitely. Does that. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah definitely, yeah. No, I mean, I think that's the go-to thing in my brain. Like, mm-hmm. my daughter's like, oh, I have a stomach ache. I'm like, I've obviously, like, served her the wrong lunch. Like, <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> like, that's right. Clearly, that's right. this is, and this is going to screw up her the rest of her life. Like, she'll that's never right. be able to. She's going to be living in your basement because she's going to fail that Spanish quiz and then right. she'll never go to oh, college. Yeah. And, yeah, oh, yeah. I know. Yeah. We can do yeah. that. We do that just as easily as the students do it, you know. They can catastrophize everything. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> I mean, we talked we talked earlier about the benefits of the one-on-one learning model. Mm-hmm. What are some of the challenges of one-on-one as it you know as it relates to social emotional learning, socializing with peers, and what are some of the ways that you sort of compensated for that or addressed that? During COVID, obviously, um, it's more of a struggle. But I think the the beauty of Lynx Academy and the one-on-one model is that it's truly school. Um, you can do it in less time, and then you can go on, you know, to mm. do other things. And like we right. have students here who are athletes, who are entertainment professionals. We have students that are doing internships. We have a young woman who came to us because she got an amazing opportunity to do something in um, the city as an internship in her you know, school. It was just too hard to schedule it. You know, the thing is that you, of course, are not working with peers the same way, so you don't have to navigate peers and you maybe are not learning right. those skills. But there's a lot of adults here, and so I think some of the kids are actually forming relationships with adults that they might not have the opportunity to to do in a larger school where, you know, or any school where each teacher is responsible for so many students. I'm hoping post-COVID we get back to, you know, community service projects together. And like we do try to build in opportunities for students to socialize. Mm-hmm. We have mm-hmm. lunch together and breaks together. We schedule them at the same time. But it's, it's hard uh, right now to do that. To me, the one-on-one education would be awesome. What needs to expand is the social uh, experiences outside of the classroom. Right. That's the exactly. ideal, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so we're talking about the expansion of community activities, mm-hmm. of sports that exist outside of schools. That's what I would love to see coming out of COVID is uh, less of an emphasis on institutional learning, which, right. by the way, I mean, was formed 
in the industrial right. revolution right. basically to, to, do to make factory workers. Right. Yeah. yeah. And we don't mm -hmm. need factory workers anymore. So at the same time, that's the system we have right now. Again, I don't want to slam it all together. That's the direction I would, I would love to see us move in. Well, there are schools and, you know, I think King did do this well. And I know independent schools that actually, um, you know, we're working with right tech. I think, you know, experiential learning is really a wave that we really need. And, you know, all so totally. many schools are starting, you know, these research programs, you know, for their STEM work and actually kids are doing research and I know I talked to a counselor at Darien High School. They have a class called DIY where the kids are actually learning how to like change a tire. And Good. I mean, you know, like yeah, it's great. like adulting, I practical. guess, 101. Yeah, practical. And, and they're, of course, engaged in that. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, we all like that, right? right? We've been to plenty of conferences where if you, you know, have to sit there and listen to someone read off of their paper you get up to go buy a book you know you're not gonna sit there and let some, somebody read but if they get you moving around and showing you what it would look like if you implemented what they're talking about you're way more engaged there are two very effective strategies to use for kids that are anxious number one is be very positive and by very positive i'd say 80 percent of your feedback should be wins for the kid. That basically, that builds their self-confidence and their sense of self-worth. There's an attitude, an old school sort of attitude about, well, you know, toughen them up and, you know, that sort of thing. But the brain science just doesn't support that at all as a, as a way of building resilience and confidence. You know, another thing that, that Becky mentioned was breaking things into small manageable steps. You gradually build towards the thing that they're most terrified of. You don't avoid it. We're not teaching avoidance. It's a delicate balance, but you certainly don't want to teach a kid to avoid things that scare them in life, but you have to approach it gradually. Again, there's a sort of an old school attitude about, well, just throw them in the deep end of the pool and hope for the best. The sink or swim uh, generally results in sink. So that gradual exposure and positive uh, self-worth, the results are pretty stunning, personality changing. It's, it's magical to see. Let's talk about the pandemic and I mean, how has it changed what you do? Well, I mean, the thing is that obviously the world kind of shut down in March. And so I was teaching still um, and had to teach remotely. Mm. But now I'm at mm -hmm. links. I think what we're finding through the intake is that a lot of kids that were pretty strong students just did not do well. It is true that students that were not great students, right, obviously did not do well either, right, because right. there's nobody holding them accountable. But I think disaster for me, this, strikes the unprepared. Yes, uh, that's right. Absolutely. But I think seeing students that were doing school well also mm -hmm. really suffered, right, because the piece of their identity where they would be the ones that would chat with the teachers in the hallways or, you know, be the head of clubs or, you know, really be totally. doing school well, lost right. that. And like right. losing that piece of your identity, you kind of start to feel like, well, what's the point? You know, manage if you didn't have a great classroom management in person, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it doesn't get better. It online, doesn't does come it? No. better online. No, no, no. really doesn't. So, uh, and you maybe were getting get into how have you sort of uh, dealt with that 
So one-on-one education, I think, is really, you know, because you're engaged, you're having a social uh, relationship, even if it's online, you're paying attention to the teacher, the teacher's paying attention to you. And so I think that that's really helped. We've had more and more uh, requests. Um, I've been here almost six months, and I think the first maybe five or six weeks, we didn't have one request for in-person learning. And the last mm-hmm, mm-hmm. three months, I've had half of the people are asking, well, can they come in person to learn? And of course, people are really ready. <laughs> um, and then we also have students here who the parents have wanted them to get out of the dining room. <laughs> and so we have students who right. utilize our smaller offices where we can't teach classes right now because of the uh, COVID protocols who are zooming into Greenwich High School, right, from our building Uh, so that they can have a space that's not at home. They feel like they're coming to school and then they're supplementing with, you know, our physics program and our and our EF coach. That's clever. That's a good Mm -hmm. idea. Yeah. What do you think the future of education is going to look like? Well, I hope people still gather. I don't know if they need to gather from eight to four every day. You know, like you were saying, I mean, are there are there ways to do it differently? You know, I have been a big proponent for many years. If we're a college preparatory program, why don't we do what colleges do, right? Where you only meet three 50-minute classes a week or you meet, you know, two and a half hours once a week. And then you find ways to apply that learning, you know, and, you know, you do labs in real life or you do community service or you you code so you can create the next cool virtual (laughs) learning space, you know, but. um, Well, I think that's a that's a brilliant idea, really, with uh, evolving towards a more college format um, for high schools in particular, because that addresses kind of one of, I would say, the biggest hiccups in the system right now which is that transition from high school to college. Right, but imagine that high schools actually take the syllabus model, which would have been great as a school counselor, right? So, and for kids that struggle with executive function issues, you know what needs to be done at the beginning, right? And it's not changed every day and teachers don't say, oh, we didn't get to it, so we're gonna add this as extra homework, right? So I do think um, there are pieces from the college model that if, even if we didn't go fully college uh, model as a high school, that right. definitely lessening that the amount of time. Yeah. And like telling kids what is if you had a syllabus model as a freshman, by the time you were a freshman in college, you would be pretty practiced at knowing that all three books need to be read in smaller pieces because you can't do it in one night. <laughs> like, of course. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, Skill and, development. And. I mean, what's the hardest age to be in our society? To me, it's like 17, 18, right? It's that brink between like childhood and adulthood. I I mean, I I don't disagree with you. I think it's very hard to be um, 17 or 18 in a transition, but I, you know, we could argue that it's, at least they're going to something that somewhat resembles what they know. True. You know, yeah. 22, yeah. you don't have a college to go to anymore. And if you are doing graduate school, you're tough, paying too. for it yourself yeah. usually. And, you know, so, but I, I think, it, I do think the, the more skills that we can, I mean, I think a lot of times we say college preparatory and we mm, really mm-hmm. need to think about what that means. And, uh, you know, for us at Lynx, it means making sure that you understand the, 
the skills of each discipline that will be expected of you, like supporting a thesis and, you know, understanding historical significance. And but the content is a little bit less important in one-on-one, right? We want students to be engaged. We just had a student who did a whole U.S. history uh, course through the female perspective. And she was so engaged in bringing things that she was going off and spending more time on research to bring to have discussions. And they still covered all the very important things that you need to cover in US history, but from a different perspective. And she was fully engaged. Um, And this was somebody who had not been so engaged. Hmm, that's perfect. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. My three key takeaways from my discussion with Becky were the following. I think the best sort of professional development as teachers or personnel development as parents can be understanding how to better relate to our kids. You know, the most that I learned about my teaching was by being a student to other teachers. Teaching is 90% retention. So if you have to teach something, you remember 90% of it later. I think it's very important, I I think, possible, very possible to do this in a one-on-one setting. More difficult with teaching and classroom teaching, but you can certainly invert the classroom there as well. My next key takeaway is that kids don't need us to fix their problems. One technique that my wife and I have found helpful with our kids is to ask them, would you like me to listen, help you solve this problem? Or would you like something else? 99% of the time they say, I'd just like you to listen or just to be here. And that goes to show you uh, what it is they need um, when they're sort of freaking out in those ways. They don't want you to do it for them. They don't want you to to pick them up and to solve their problems. It's sort of counterintuitive, but it's what they need. Lastly, a great tactic for managing anxiety, whether in ourselves or in our children, is to break something into small manageable steps particularly for kids who have executive functioning issues. For a kid who's in school refusal, you have to go to school today, which is this monumental task. You start with just put your shoes on. I guess the key term I would use is momentum. Being a sort of habitual creature, as we all are, we sort of tend to fall into patterns and routines. Building momentum in other directions seems incredibly critical. The way to sort of shake yourself out of those patterns that you're in is mindfulness. A lot of the things that we do repetitively for comfort are invisible to us. Developing new healthy patterns through mindfulness and using that as momentum to sort of build toward a more positive place, that's really important in particular for kids with anxiety. Thanks for listening to Graduating Anxiety, the podcast that helps caregivers of anxious learners overcome obstacles to find academic success and build continuously happy lives. If you liked this episode, be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Alex Merrill. See you soon.